Here at the Alan Turing Institute, our mission is to make great leaps in data science and artificial intelligence research in order to change the world for the better. This podcast explores the research, ideas and technologies behind a data revolution with the people responsible for shaping our future. Welcome to the Turing Podcast. everyone welcome to a new episode of the cheering podcast and today we are doing a special episode because us girls took over there's no ed because it's international women's day and um we're just gonna chat a little bit about that so my co-hosts today are rachel and joe hi girls hi (laughs) how are you doing how are you rachel I'm good. Thanks. Very excited for an International Women's Day episode and also taking control of the podcast from Ed. Exactly. exactly. How are you, Joe? How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Also very excited for this podcast and our amazing guest that we've got lined up. That is true. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. For now, we're going to talk about how this year's theme is um, hashtag choose to challenge. So the International Women's Day is um, an has a theme that we are going to challenge um, gender bias and inequality. So instead of having a game today, we've decided we're going to talk about what we personally, each of us, uh, want to challenge and continue to challenge. So Rachel, do you want to get started? Yeah, sure. So um, this is a slight little plug for my other podcast project that's just starting. Uh, so me and a couple of uh, girls I work with from the civil service have decided to set up a podcast called Steminist Stories, which is all about um, women in STEM um, who aren't really talked about or acknowledged for their contributions. So everything, there's always like the general women who are talked about, like Marie Curie and things like that who are obviously did a lot for science and the people like Ava Lovelace did a lot for computing there's a lot of other women who aren't really talked about so I guess my sort of eye challenge um theme for the year is to kind of start talking about women's stories in STEM who aren't really covered that much and they're like amazing contributions to science so I'm very excited because it's basically an excuse to really nerd out on all this stuff for the next 12 months well, it sounds really exciting, and all our listeners, uh, here is the <laughs> the plug for Rachel's new podcast. <laughs> How about you, Joe? Do you want to tell us what you're challenging? Sure. So I actually have two uh, because there is so much to challenge. Um, so my first one, I suppose, is a bit of a broad um, technology-related challenge. So I'm challenging the fact that we we're living in a society which is increasingly shaped by technology. However, the people creating that technology are not representative of everyone that will be using it. So, you know, the idea of the fact that we need more female creators and, you know, other kind of minority groups uh, creating that technology that we're all going to be using and that is already shaping our lives. Um, And I suppose another one, which is 
challenge, which is not technology related, um, which has been, I think, highlighted by the pandemic, is the fact that mothers are still very underappreciated by society. And the fact that caring duties within the last year have predominantly fallen to women. So obviously that, you know, is care of children, but also caring of you know other people in society. And I think we really need to look at what that means, like economically, but also for progression um, in society as well for women. Um, so those are my two for today. Oh, thank you. Mine is a bit more specific because I don't know if I've mentioned it here on the podcast, but I'm from Portugal. And I feel that Portugal, even though it's having a lot of um, progress, it's still a little bit far behind on, on equality and gender um, um, balance, as particularly in, in, in technology. Um, I give an example on, on the podcast when we talk to our guests and it was a conference that happened in Portugal, um, 10 years ago. So it's not even that long ago. And the truth is that there's still a lot to do and there's a lot of initiatives in Portugal going around. And I'm going to try to be more active in them and more participant. And, um, well, who knows? <laughs> Maybe even do a little bit of comedy if I try to. <laughs> So, dear listeners, please um, keep in mind what do you want to challenge this year. If you are a misogynist, then maybe you shouldn't be listening to us because we do not condone you. <laughs> uh, but if you're not, uh, look around you and see what you can challenge and how you can keep an eye open to inequality and, and unconscious bias. Because unfortunately, it's everywhere. So... Um, I guess we're going to now go to our, um, <laughs> let's go to our podcast. Joe, do you want to tell us who is coming today? Yeah, so exci very excitingly, we spoke to Professor Sue Black on lots of different things. She told us about her inspirational story um, and the conversation progressed from there. So yeah, enjoy. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Cheering Podcast. Uh, I'm Jo and I'm in the communications team and I'm here with my co-host B. And this week we're incredibly excited to be joined by Professor Sue Black. So let me give a little introduction to Sue in case you, you know, haven't heard of her, which I'd be surprised about. Um, so Sue is a professor of computer science and technology evangelist, Durham University. She has set up initiatives such as BCS Women and the Social Enterprise Tech Mums to encourage more women into computing. She's also instrumental in the campaign to save Bletchley Park. Um, this isn't... Uh, hi, Sue. Uh, hi. This isn't, hi. This isn't, hi. Your, <laughs> this isn't the, the first time that you're actually involved with the cheering, right? You pre previously delivered the cheering lecture. If I could do it, so can you. Where you, you told the community all about your inspirational story. And also you ran a Tech Moms workshop, which sounds really cool. So welcome to the podcast and we're going to ask you, we're going to pick your brain on a few things. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I had, that was in Newcastle maybe two years ago now, I think. And uh, 
Yeah, so I guess, you know, I like talking. Well, do I like talking about it? I talk about my challenges and stuff that I've managed to overcome in my life because I just want everyone to kind of get out there and uh, live their best life, I guess. And whatever I can do to to help encourage people to to get out there and um, kind of go for it, then uh, I, I suppose I spend quite a lot of time doing that these days. Which is, yeah, absolutely fantastic. And I think you know, I kind of gave a very whistle-stop tour of kind of, you know, a few career highlights for you there. Um, But I suppose for anyone at home that's maybe less familiar with your kind of career journey and kind of how you've got to where you are now, it'd be great if you could maybe talk about that if you're you're happy to. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Happy to. Yeah. So, I mean, I I don't, I guess I come from like an average family, mum, dad, brother and sister who are twins and five years younger than me. Um, But unfortunately, when when I was 12, my mum died, my dad remarried um quite quickly possibly to the wrong person um and my life kind of went from living in a a functional family to living in a dysfunctional family so I was quite depressed uh for most of the time between like 13 and 16 and basically left home as soon as I could um moved in with my friends family stayed there for a, a year and then um moved to London so we were out in Essex and uh worked in various jobs uh which I enjoyed then got married at 20 uh, I had my daughter, first daughter at 21. And then I thought, well, I'll, I'll have um, I'll have another baby and then I'll go back to work. That other baby turned out to be twin boys. Um, so I had them when I was 23. And then unfortunately, about um, a year and a half after that, my marriage broke down. So we had to we ended up having to leave uh, where we were living um, early one morning um, because my ex-husband threatened to kill us all. Um, so we all had to run away, lived in women's refuge for six months and then kind of started life again in um, in uh, Brixton in London on a council estate. And I got my my daughter, who was then four, into school, like into reception, got the boys into playgroup. And then I thought to myself, so, you know, what am I going to do now? This is not the situation. It's not the life that, you know, this is what I expected my life to be like, really. Um, and I thought about going back to work, but then realised that I left school at 16 with five O levels. And that was now sort of 10 years uh, previously. And um, I realised that I probably wouldn't be able to get a job that, you know, above minimum wage, really. I'd probably be working in a supermarket. So with three small children, I wouldn't even be able to earn enough to pay for childcare. So I realised going back to work wasn't an option. Thought about going back to studying. I hadn't wanted to leave school when I was 16, which I had to at the time. So, you know, I'd always wanted to go to university. Um, so I thought, well, let me see what options are available uh, to kind of get back into education. Went along to the local college, uh, Southwark College in London, and met an amazing tutor, Willie Taylor there, who told me all about this um, uh, maths course they had called Polymaths, which just was six hours a week in the classroom and 20 hours a week private study. So that meant that I just had to get all just, you know, I had to get a babysitter for two nights a week, but um, which was manageable. Um, and I could do the studying like when the kids were asleep in the evening um, or when they were sort of in childcare. So did that course for a year and then applied to study computing at South Bank Uni. Um, that was really hard to start with because I had to take the kids to school, drop them off at nine, get to uni at 10, leave at two to pick them up at 3.15. So particularly the first year was really difficult because I felt like I missed half the lectures and stuff. But, you know, I made friends and and friends picked up the notes for me because back in the old days, we had like paper copies of notes that the lecturers (laughs) would give out. Um, 
And um, I think we needed to get 50% to get through the first year. And I think I got 52 or something like that. So I scraped through the first year. But then gradually things got easier and easier. Um, and in the end, I got a 2-1 in computing, which was great. And then in the final year of my degree, my uh, degree project supervisor said to me, what do you think about doing a PhD? So I said, oh, I'd love to do a PhD. But actually, I didn't know what a PhD was. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I just pretended that I did. But then when I looked at it, I went to the library afterwards because we didn't have mobile phones on the internet then. Went to the library and looked up what is a PhD. And when I saw that it was doing research and, you know, blah, 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 I just thought, oh, actually, I'd love to do a PhD. I really would love to do a PhD. Um, so then interviewed, got a position to do uh, a PhD in uh, software engineering. And, well, it took me seven years, but um, I got I got it eventually. And during that time, became a full-time lecturer at the uni. So I had, like, in quotes, a proper job uh, as well. Maybe I'll pause there. I feel like I'll talk forever. If you let me, <laughs> find me up and I get going. <laughs> no, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Um, for for it's so many, you've, you've overcome so many challenges and this is incredible. So what I what I want to know is, what would you tell your younger self if you could? If you could go back, at what age would you go and what would you tell her? Wow. Well, I guess, yeah, I mean, all the time. So I, I feel like I was very, very, like, underconfident when I was younger. I was very shy. Um, I kind of had this self-belief, um, but at the same time would never kind of, like, um, argue any case with anybody. You know, I would just kind of, like, take what anyone else said uh, as being the truth or the best thing to do. Um, I think, you know, really I I would love to know that actually I was having opinions that were valid and valuable um, and, you know, I just didn't have the confidence to share them. And so I think it would be around kind of trusting your gut instincts. You know, I think particularly as a young woman, quite a lot of the time um you know you're not your contributions aren't on as valued as they should be potentially in in society in general and you know I really feel like you know I'd love to tell myself that you know my opinions were valid and valuable and that I could have a successful career and I could be a successful person um, and I would be able to to kind of overcome lots of challenges. I think I thought when I was younger that everyone else was having a great time and I was having a terrible time. And like, why was it just me? Um, but and you, know, you didn't have like, Instagram because now everyone has Instagram. <laughs> so it's even worse. <laughs> we didn't even have the Internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no absolutely so you know I think everyone gets challenging times in their life and I didn't know that I thought it was just me you know and I think if I'd known that other people were going through difficult things but potentially just not talking about them um then I would have not felt you know I kind of I think I kind of really felt like I was different in that I was having a terrible time but in fact you know there were so many people having a terrible time and you know because it's pre-internet you know, my information, I didn't have the internet to see what was happening, you know, no social media, no internet, you couldn't really see what was happening to people all around the world. Um, let you know, like even down the road, let alone around the world. And um, people didn't really talk about things then as much as we do now as well, like share information about themselves. So yeah, again, I could talk about this forever. But I guess that's the main points I really covered there. Yeah, I think it's so true, isn't it? I mean, you know, if you 
you know, the more people share and the more people kind of understand other people's positions and experiences, then I think everyone feels a little bit less alone in their own situation, don't they? Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, I think, um, you know, and a, a big part of your kind of career has obviously been campaigning, you know, for more support for women in tech um, and academia. Um, and you've obviously founded some initiatives around that. Um, you know, are you able to tell us a little bit more about kind of the initiatives themselves, like Tech Moms, BS, BCS Women? And, you know, <laughs> what was your thinking of um, setting those up? Like, you know, was it, you know, support groups, or like information sharing? I'm, I'm so interested in that element of your career. Sure, thank you. No, I think I'm going to set up BS Women now. Yes. <laughs> I think that's a great name. <laughs> that's a, the three of us are going to found out after this podcast, <laughs> BS Women. Um, yeah, so BCS Women kind of came about because, so when I was a PhD student, I guess when I was doing my degree, I think it was about 90% guys and 10% women. And to be honest, I, I don't think I ever really thought much about the fact that I was in a minority there or anything like that. Um, because I, you know, I had loads of friends in the class and it just, as far as I can remember anyway, it didn't really seem to be an issue. And I didn't kind of think about myself as a woman in computing or a woman in tech. Um, and it wasn't really till I was doing my PhD when my PhD supervisor said to me, you know, when you go to conferences, you've got to network with people because it's not just what you know, it's who you know, you know, which is true. Um, what you know is important, but it's good to network and, and kind of make friends with people um, as well. Um, and so, you know, when I went to my first conference. Again, I was really shy. So I just thought, you know, I've got to network. That's like the worst thing that anyone can ask me to do ever. I'm dreading it but I've been told I should do it. So I'm going to do it. Um, the first conference I went to, um, I, there was a guy who gave a sort of really down to earth talk, seemed quite funny. So I thought, okay, he's quite approachable. I'll chat to him in the break. He can be my one person that I'm going to talk to at this conference. And, um, so I, I went up to chat to him in the break and we had a great chat over a cup of tea or coffee. Um, but then, which, which was fine. And then for the rest of the conference though, every time I turned around, he was staring at me and I couldn't work out why he was staring at me. And I, I just thought, what did I say that was so wrong that you're just staring at me all the time? So, of course, I don't think I said anything wrong now looking back. But I really didn't. Ha- you know, I was very, um, I don't know what you'd call it, but, you know, I, I wasn't confident and uh, I guess socially naive or something. You know, I didn't quite know what had gone wrong there. And I just thought, well, it was me. You know, I did something wrong. And so now he's staring at me and I don't know why. So then the next conference I went to, you know, tried the same kind of thing again. Um, and ended up chatting, well, trying to chat to two guys. So we're just kind of like standing at a table as you do with a cup of tea. So I said something like, you know, like my amazing um, uh, kind of starting conversation lines was something like, so how did you find the last session? Or, you know, something like that at a conference. And um, and both the, the guys looked at me and then looked at each other and just started chatting with each other and complete, completely oh. left me out of the conversation so I stood there feeling like a right lemon thinking, what do I do now? Like, I just had no clue what to do. So I was mortified, uh, obviously. And I just felt like I don't comprehend what's going. Why is this happening? Like, I don't understand it. And again, I thought maybe I, I shouldn't have said that or I just didn't really know what to do. So that's why I went into the loo's and just sat on the loo and started crying, thinking, what is wrong with me? Why can't I do this? So I had this kind of like terrible complex about my lack of ability at networking. And then in 98, so it's maybe, I don't know, it's probably like the fifth or sixth conference I went to, was Women in Science Conference. 
I remember walking into the conference in Brussels thinking to myself, oh God, you know, here we go, networking, I'm terrible at it. I wonder what's going to happen this time. And uh, I like, went to the registration desk, picked up my badge, uh, went over to get a cup of tea. And um, it just, see, the whole two days of the conference flew by and I felt like everyone was chatting to everyone. And so that kind of really helped me to realise that it wasn't me necessarily um and that if you're in the majority life is just easier you know and you don't realize till you're in both of those kind of situations and I, you know I hadn't really thought about I was a woman and it was about 10% women at the previous conferences it honestly ha- I don't think really occurred to me but it wasn't until I was in a mainly in like in, in the majority in a women focused conference and had such a different experience that I kind of that I realized that and I just not had that realization before so that conference changed my life. And when I came back, I kind of took steps to, to set up BCS Women, so the British Computer Society um, Women's Network, uh, which turned out to be the first online network for women in tech in the UK, just because mainly I wanted to connect women together so that we could just chat, chat about technology, chat about computing, meet each other and, you know, just kind of like support and encourage each other. And that's kind of how it started, you know, and I, I mean, it's still still going strong now. And that's now 23 years ago. I can't believe it's 23 years, but it is. Um, so so that's how BCS Women came about. And then Tech Mums came about because about um, 10 years ago, I was um, I just finished uh, running the campaign to say Bletchley Park. And I guess I was looking for something else to do. I don't know, outside my day job. And um I kind of was thinking back over the years and and thinking about how technology and education massively changed my life and my life chances and my family's life as well because I was able to to get a job where I could earn you know a reasonable amount of money and um so I don't know if you can hear the banging but we've got builders on the roof so apologies for that <laughs> it's actually okay <laughs> yeah. okay that's good um so yeah so tech mums came about because I, you know, I'd finished campaigning to say Bletchley Park, so that was over. And I realized how technology and education had made a massive difference to, to my life. And at that time, so it was about 2012, I think, Michael Gove was the education secretary, and he was saying that computing was too difficult for anyone under 14. And I just thought, oh, that that's a load of rubbish. Um, but I wanted to kind of try and prove it, I think. So started um, running workshops with um, seven-year-old kids. So my youngest daughter was seven at the time. So I just thought she can do stuff in tech, you know, like, or computing. I'm sure she can. So um, ran workshops for her age children. So doing stuff like app design with Apps for Good and uh, programming in Scratch and using Raspberry Pis and programming in Python. And so running these workshops and the kids absolutely loved it and had a great time and um, and could do it. And so computing is not too difficult for anyone under 14, which, I, you know, I know that's true. Um, but that was kind of like a bit of the pervasive attitude at the time. And so at the end of the day, when we'd run these workshops, we'd get the parents to come in and see what the kids have been doing because I wanted to get them involved as well. And in in general, so not everyone, but in general, when when we asked the parents to get involved, the dads would kind of like step forward because because they had like Raspberry Pis and and uh, monitors and stuff in front of them. The dads would kind of step forward and have a look at what the kids were doing. Um, 
and like a few of the mums just look very apprehensive and like like I really don't want to do this kind of look on their faces and that just put sparked a thought in my head you know why don't I try and put something together to teach mums tech skills to help them see what opportunities are out there um and then if the mums get it then of course the kids will get it and they'll provide a supportive environment for the kids too so um so then I put together started putting together a program of stuff like the kids have been doing so like um app design a bit of coding in python web design how to stay safe online um how to use social media and stuff like that so I put that program together around that time I found out that there was some research which showed that the key positive influencing factors on kids doing well at school at age 11 were their mum's education and their home environment so I just thought you know like there's there's so many reasons why teaching mums tech skills is such a good idea because it's great for the mums but it's also great for the kids and great for the family uh so that started running in tower hamlets back in 2013 um and we had great success straight away really with you know mums we had Brunel University uh, put together a research framework to measure the mum's attitudes towards themselves and towards technology. Um, as they went through the program, we found that their attitude towards technology improved. So they became more confident with technology, more positive about technology. But the main difference actually was that the mum's general self-esteem, so how they felt about themselves, changed really dramatically. And so that was a real eye-opener for me. I mean, it's obvious, you know, like as soon as I knew it, it was obvious, but it's not what I'd thought about when I was putting the program together in that if in quite a short amount of time you can learn to do stuff which you just thought you would never be able to do, of course that's going to improve uh, your confidence in yourself. So, so that was amazing and, and Tech Moms has been running since then and so we've gone a bit quiet um, this last year with COVID because particularly with mums kind of at the beginning of their tech adventure, I suppose, um, meeting up in person is quite critical really to help people kind of um you know not not one-to-one but you know to get some quick feedback on how to do things um and it's quite hard to do that online really but um, we're looking forward to getting going as soon as uh, lockdown finishes um this is uh, such a such a good way to go into my next question but first of all thank you so much for telling us about all of those um stories and and it's it still happens. It still happened to me and I'm a different generation about going to right. a tech conference and being one of the very few uh, women. Um, there's, there's only one advantage. I keep saying it on, on, on some of my routines, which is you don't have, you know, lines to the restroom. But other than that, um, yeah, <laughs> there's nothing else. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Right. So it's still happening to you as a PhD student. That it kind still of... happened to me about oh. 10 years ago at the first conference yeah. that I went to. Okay. It was um, 800 participants and 20 women. Wow. So, so it was a bit of a ratio, <laughs> yes. but I thought you would like to yeah. know that it happened also quite recently. Yeah. But my question is, um, needs a bit of an intro because this podcast is going to come out around the Women's International Day. And this year, the challenge, the, the, the topic, the theme is choose to challenge. Yeah. Um, and the truth is that this past year has been one of the most 
challenging years in modern society um yeah. and inequality has been heightened by by the pandemic like if it existed before now it's even more blatant um in particular like you said you 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 already mentioned how how the pandemic affected having engagement of of women with tech moms um what do you what do you think we can do to make sure that these discrepancies and inequalities are elim uh, eliminated and this doesn't repeat in a potential future crisis? Wow, <laughs> that's a big question to answer. Well, I guess, you know, I think, um, you know, we have to kind of accept really that we all have unconscious bias and that our society is biased. And I think we all just have to accept that that's how it is and how we are and then work together to to kind of take steps towards trying to make society how we want it to be, not not how it's been in the past. And so I think just accepting that, you know, like organisations accepting that, all accepting that we don't get everything right all the time and we're going to make some mistakes as well. And then, you know, working together to put together um, programs which will help change things and to address things like the gender pay gap, you know, which is ludicrous. It's still ludicrous. It's been highlighted as an issue for I don't know how many years, you know, years and years and years. And yet, you know, we're still not there at gender parity, even though. Um, everyone knows that it's an issue, you know, and it just it just takes people working together and accepting that, that it's the right thing to do and then just getting on and doing it. So, you know, I think with the kind of choose to, to challenge thing, we should all challenge ourselves and each other to just start taking steps to work together to, to sort things out, which aren't fair. Yeah, and I think it's been, um, you know, I was reading an article just before this around, you know, women taking on you know, already taking on lots of the caring duties, but, you know, particularly with things like homeschooling and, you know, it's something that, you know, I hope that we haven't kind of regressed, but equally it's, you know, it seems to be predominantly women that have taken on those responsibilities during this pandemic, um, which makes progression really, really difficult. Um, and yeah, I think it's, yeah, got a long way to go. Yeah. But the thing is, it's, it's not like it's an unsolvable or they are unsolvable problems exactly. we can solve them so we just need to accept their problems and just get on and solve them so you know I think that is the challenge we all recognize that now um and you know we we know where the the areas of of issue are so why aren't we just getting on and sorting them out yeah I suppose it's one thing isn't it to talk about them and raise awareness but actually the you know change comes when action happens um, yeah, and policy changes happen don't they? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, so when I was younger, I was really not in favour of um, of quotas and stuff like that. But the older I get, the more radical I get. <laughs> I guess because I'd seen that, you know, like from setting up BCS Women, that's 23 years ago. So a whole generation ago, um, I set up that network um, to support women. And I think the, the percentage of women in tech then was like 15 to 20%. So it's still 15 to 20%. And so... Some things have moved on in that, you know, we all now really have much more of an understanding of sort of diversity and inclusion of all sorts. Um, and, you know, and companies are taking steps towards making sure that they're inclusive and stuff like that. But, you know, it shouldn't take a whole generation just to move things on a bit. You know, that that's just wrong. And, you know, like the older I get, the more I think, well, so these these problems won't probably be sorted out in my lifetime, you know, because that's a whole generation now from me being in my 20s and 30s to my 50s. If things haven't moved that much now, so then 
it's like, am I just going to end up retired or dying? And all these issues are still around. To me, that just makes me feel very um, twitchy and just want to get on and make things happen. And, and you know, we shouldn't have to wait generations for, for these sort of things. If we realise they're problems, we should just get on and, and start sorting them out. And, like, yeah, I get the older I get, the more... Um, I guess uh, radical. I get as well in in terms of just wanting to sort stuff out and make things happen. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, it's kind of the proactive element of like so many people. They just kind of want to, you know, if it's, a job isn't isn't being done properly, like let's just sort it out ourselves. Um, yeah. And I think. I mean, do you kind of have one? I mean, I guess there isn't a one solution to anything. But you know, <laughs> if you had to kind of narrow down, what is like the biggest? barrier to women going into tech or computing you know what would you say it would be do you think um you, you can't you just can't say that there's one because there's yeah not. And, and a lot of it is our society and the way we still bring up girls to not really think yeah. that, that science or tech is a great career you know and unfortunately it's still happening and and it is part of our society that we just in general see things like that and you know we've got to really tackle that in a multitude of ways really so like one of the things we've done uh, at Durham recently is run a program called Tech Up Women and that's mm. the aim of that is to provide a pathway to um to women to be able to retrain into tech careers because I think for a long time we've kind of had this idea that you know you study subjects at school then maybe go to uni and then that's your subject area for life whereas yeah you know I just think we've moved so far away from that you don't need to just be in one job for your whole career um you can retrain in weeks or months uh and then do almost a, a completely different job and potentially you can have a portfolio career right you can you can have several different job roles and we're not all just good at one thing and that's it you know that's just not it's a very sort of reductive uh, way of looking at human ability I suppose and so we put together a program called Tech Up Women so we work with 15 industry partners and three other universities and put together a program to retrain women particularly from underserved backgrounds from the Midlands and the North into tech careers and we ask the industry partners you know where are your skill shortages what job roles do you want to employ women into and so, you know, they told us that. And then we put together a program together, which took women with degrees from sort of computer science 101 through to being able to apply for jobs uh, in tech. So the top four roles were software developer, agile project manager, business analyst and data scientist. So we created a, a course which went from computer science 101 through to those pathways and then into a job in tech and so that's a six month mainly online part-time course and so we need things like we need lots of pathways uh, for women into tech careers but also people from underserved communities um, and people you know that maybe haven't had the best chances in life to be able to to train into technology because you know, tech's the biggest growing sector and it's just going to keep growing and growing and growing till basically everything is tech or involves tech. Um, and so, you know, I just think there, there's no reason to to not really um, train into, into technology because A, you're going to have a job um, for life probably and B, um, you're going to earn a reasonable amount of money, you know, and 
So, you know, so that that's one solution. There there are lots of other things that need to happen. I mean, com- companies really need to sort out the gender pay gap within their organizations. Of course, that's that needs to happen. Um and well, I think, you know, all of us kind of working at home for a year has shown that we don't all need to be in an office nine to five or nine to six every day. So that's another thing which potentially could benefit women or people um you know who who aren't able to 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 travel into an office uh, from nine to five every day. So I think actually there are some benefits from from the last year, just in terms of organisations realizing that they don't have to have everyone behind a desk um, all in the same place from nine to five every day. And of course, they'll save money now by you know by not paying uh, ridiculous amounts for buildings. Um, to house hundreds or, or thousands of people when they could actually, lots of them could just work from home. Um, so I forgot what the question was now. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. It was like a natural progression. So I think my, my my question, wasn't it? And I think, yeah, it's really interesting. You know, you commented about kind of girls seeing it as an industry or a career path them, or just seeing how they fit into that landscape. And I think like earlier on, you mentioned Apps for Good, and I actually used to work for Apps for Good um, okay. like a couple of years ago. Um, and there are fantastic initiatives, I suppose, to to just to show children, you know, this is an industry that exists, and you ha- there is a place for you in it. I mean, one thing I've kind of thought about with the pandemic, and maybe not specifically tech, but kind of more science or STEM. You know, do you think there's going to be a kind of the kind of pandemic has maybe sparked interest in going into that kind of career because it's just been around us all the time for the last year. And it's something that science has talked, has never been more talked about, has it really? Yeah, true. Well, hopefully, hopefully. I mean, you know, I think, yeah, being at home has enabled us all to, I guess we've kind of, maybe our culture will have changed slightly because of, you know, what's happened. I kind of, you know, I think about it as kind of our, our generation, well, I know we're not the same generation, but, you know, um, our generation's kind of World War Two. you know, because I know like when I used to chat to my grandparents, lots of the time they would talk about what happened in the war because it was just so dramatically different um, mm. to kind of our everyday life. And I kind of feel like, you know, since then, this is probably the biggest thing um, that's happened to change the way that, that we see ourselves and see that see the world because um, it's such a um, kind of dramatically different from everyday life like the vaccines I mean it's such a massive story um, and uh, I had my first one a couple of weeks ago which I'm delighted about um, so yeah absolutely I'm sure that that will encourage loads of people to loads of kids to go into science hopefully because they'll be able to see you know like on the news practically every day uh, that the numbers uh, of people dying from COVID will be dropping and a lot of that will be down to us all, well, a large proportion of us um, getting the vaccine. And um, so absolutely, it's a great um, story, science story to encourage uh, kids to go into science. So I think definitely that. Well, what I still really, I think a lot of the time people don't or kids don't realise that they're using technology all the time. And I think we still kind of have this a bit of a stereotype of jobs in technology as um, some guy in a hoodie kind of sitting in the corner programming. Um, and, you know, that's that's not what a job in tech looks like for probably like 98 percent of the jobs in tech, I think. And, you know, I'd, I'd still like kids to really realise that there's all sorts of jobs in technology, just so, so many. And they're using technology all the time. You know, like my 17 year old daughter 
is on um, TikTok and Instagram all day, practically, you know, like every day when she's not at school, you know, and that to me, that's great that she's got that, you know, because she can connect with people through social media. She can find stuff out for her A-levels. And, you know, what what I really want kids to realise is that they can be part of creating that technology, mm. not just using it. And I think, you know, that's that's something that we need to get over to kids is that creating that tech is a kind of um, an amazing thing that they can be part of and you know I think one of the great things about technology is is the people aspect really and particularly you know now, now that we've got all types of social media and the internet you know connecting people together helps us to to solve problems and I think you know as time goes on and we all connect more with each other we can connect around solving specific problems because I think a lot of the solutions are out there, but we're just, because we're um, traditionally being kind of quite siloed, I suppose, or like in our bubbles. Um, I think social media and now the pandemic has actually helped people to connect kind of across uh, different, connecting different ways that they maybe wouldn't have done before. And so, you know, I think we really need to, to tell kids that, you know, the more they understand about technology, the more they connect with other people through tech, the more they'll be able to solve the world's biggest challenges, you know, like, you know, poverty and homelessness. And, you know, I'm sure those problems can be solved. And I think technology enabling us to to connect together with people who can then work together on the solutions is, is you know, the way forward. Definitely. And I think the, the kind of creative element of technology is the thing that often is just not really talked about. You know, the creative industries are seen as a separate thing, whereas actually, you know, technology is incredibly creative. And as you said, you know, is you have to use problem solving, you have to use all sorts of skills. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think it's hopefully... Most of us still wear hoodies every day and work in a corner, but that doesn't change too much. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so you'd, you'd, you've talked about all of these, like for young people and things, but do you have any advice, uh, specifically to women that are starting their career now and they want to do it in science? Well, I think just get out there and, and go for it really. And, and find your, find your group of people, find your tribe or your group of people who will support you through, you know, your journey. So it sounds like a cliche, but, but it really is true, you know, like I, I couldn't do anything I've done without the people I've got around me, people I've met along the way, people that have supported me, mentored me, kind of advocated for me in various different ways. And and so, you know, I've got, you know, my supervisor, my PhD supervisor telling me to network at conferences and that being awful. That's now one of my favourite things to do is to meet new people. And even like, you know, online, I've been meeting people through introductions and, and chatting to people in online conferences and stuff. So, you know, you can still do it online, even if we're not meeting up in person. And I think ha building that support group around yourself, really, to help you get through the challenges that come is, is my best advice, really, and just go for it. Right. And I suppose kind of on the flip side of that, if you kind of, ha you know, had, you know, organisation in front of you, like, what would you say to them to encourage more women into their workforce? Um, well, I mean, I think 
think hard about your culture um, and do your best to make sure that it's woman friendly, but also inclusive for everybody within the organization, because organizations that really focus on making sure that their culture is inclusive for everyone will be attractive to all sorts of people. Um, And so, you know, I think that's the best place to start. And then once you feel like your culture is like that, then promote yourselves uh, to the outside world and people will want to work for you. Um, Thank you so much for answering. I feel like I'm I'm, I'm just listening to you and then I was just uh thank you so much <laughs> welcome um, but the truth is okay we're we're yeah. talking to you from the cheering and you already yes. mentioned it briefly but we yeah. can't speak with you today without discussing your work on the campaign to save Bletchley Park oh yeah um so because it's just we had to so could you tell us a little bit of what led you to get involved with this campaign and how everything happened Sure. So, so I talked about when I was doing my um, PhD, I set up BCS Women um, in 98. Well, in 2003, I got invited up to a meeting at Bletchley Park. I'd never been there before. And like on the way there, I was thinking to myself, you know, what is Bletchley Park? And like all I could think of, all that I knew really was it was where the code breakers were during the Second World War. And for some reason in my head, I had this kind of picture of like about 50 middle-aged men, like wearing tweed jackets, smoking pipes and doing the Times crosswords and maybe a bit of code breaking on the side. So I don't know where that image came from, Um, but that was it. You know, so I I got there, went to the meeting and then went for a walk around afterwards and ended up going into one of the blocks there and bumping into these guys that were rebuilding Turing's bomb machine. And, you know, I just, I, I didn't know about Turing's bomb machine at all. I'd, I'd never heard of it. So I just saw these guys kind of tinkering away on what looked like this amazing massive feat of engineering. And I just didn't know what it was. So I went over to find out and uh, talked to them about that. And they told me about, um, you know, Turing and the bomb and the industrialization of the code breaking process. And I got very excited about that. And then they asked me why I was there. So I said, oh, I'm representing this group of uh, women in computing, BCS women. Um, and uh, John, the guy that I was chatting to, said, oh, did you know that more than half of the people that worked at Bletchley Park were women? So I was like, no, I had no idea about that at all. Um because as far as I knew, it was 50 old blokes. And um, <laughs> uh, I said, how many people worked here? And he said, more than 10,000. So I was completely blown away. And it turned out it was about 8,000 women that worked at Bletchley Park and the outstations. So about 80% women. And, you know, that I'd, I'd not seen anything about that anywhere at all. So that time I went away and um, managed to get some funding to run an oral history project to capture the memories of the women that worked at Bletchley Park. Um, because I wanted to to capture their memories and for everyone to know, you know, about the women's contribution. So that it took a few years to get a bit of funding and then to run, uh, you know, to interview the women and stuff. So then it was 2008 at the launch of that project that um, Simon Greenish, who was the director of Bletchley Park at the time, said that um, in his talk said that um, he was really worried that Bletchley Park might have to close, the visitor numbers were dropping. He said they were teetering on a financial knife edge and that 
um, if they closed, they probably wouldn't be able to open again. So he was really worried that Bletchley Park might might basically close down. So I thought to myself, well, that's that's terrible. Like that can't happen. But I didn't really do anything about it. And then I think a couple of months after that, I was invited up to Bletchley Park and for the first time did a a full tour of the site with one of the veterans that had worked there. And he was telling us about all these amazing code-breaking achievements kind of as we walked around the site um, in all the different huts and stuff. And I just thought, wow, this is incredible. Um, You know, I didn't know anything about any of these stories. And um, at the end of the tour, he said, and the work that was done here was said to have shortened World War II by two years. And at that time, 11 million people a year were dying. So I just stood there thinking... So this place saved 22 million lives and it might have to close. That's that's ridiculous. I've got to do something about it. So by then I was head of department at the University of Westminster, uh, which meant that I was on an email list for all the heads and professors of computing in the country, CPHC. And so I emailed everyone saying, you know, we've got to say Bletchley Park. Um, Simon Greenish sent me a link to a petition that was on the 10 Downing Street website, uh, which someone else had set up asking the government to say Bletchley Park. So I sent that around and looked at the petition a few hours later. And, you know, I could see all these uh, uh, like really famous um, professors of computing from around the UK that had signed the petition because I'd sent that email. Um, and I got lots of emails back from heads and professors saying, you know, that they supported um, what I wanted to do. And then uh, we wrote a letter to the Times and uh, that went uh, into the paper in July 2008. Um, and also I contacted all the journalists that I knew, which was about three. So it wasn't very many. But luckily, uh, one of them was Rory Keflin-Jones, who got back to me and he interviewed me at Bletchley Park in, 2000, in July 2008, saying things like, I'm ashamed to be British. Why don't we look after our heritage? And that went on BBC News that day and was like front page of the BBC website. So that was all very exciting. That kind of happened within a week, really, of me starting. I didn't even realise I was starting a campaign at the beginning, um, what turned into it, but it turned into a campaign. Um, And uh, I got lots of emails from people all around the world saying they they supported Bletchley Park. Um, And that was great, including a couple of code breakers. But I didn't, you know, like I, I didn't, nothing much really changed. Like Bletchley Park wasn't saved. It was just there were lots of people who were interested. Um, but Bletchley Park still needed money. And so it wasn't really till the end of 2008 when I started really playing around with Twitter. So I signed up for Twitter in 2007 and basically thought, what is this rubbish? I just didn't know how to use it at all. <laughs> and then in 2008, I saw some other people using it and got them to show me what they were doing. And I was like, oh, my goodness, you know, like, this is amazing. Yeah, I, just I get it. <laughs> And uh, I realised, <laughs> I think we all have right at the beginning. Yeah. And um, I realised quite quickly that I could just type Bletchley Park into the search box in Twitter um, and find everyone in the world that was talking about Bletchley Park and, and connect with them sometimes and have almost real-time conversations with them. So that was incredible. And um, then and I'd set up a blog called Saving Bletchley Park, um, which is still there, which kind of tells the story of what we did. So I set up the blog was using Twitter. So yeah, that was amazing. I put the link for the um, blog in my Twitter profile. Various people got in touch with me um, through Twitter saying they wanted to help Bletchley Park. So in that January, um, I uh, we went to one of the code breakers, Captain Jerry Roberts was giving a talk at UCL. So we went along to that, me and some of the people from Twitter. And then the next day we went up to um, Bletchley Park itself and uh, 
to, I took everyone uh, around, well, Simon uh, took everyone around and kind of showed them the sites uh, of Bletchley Park and we got Bletchley Park set up on Twitter and stuff like that. So that was great, kind of connecting social media and Bletchley Park themselves, the management together. And then um, that's where the cats are joining in now as well. Um, and then um, uh, one night I was on Twitter and I saw that Stephen Fry had um, tweeted a selfie of himself stuck in a lift in Centre Points. And I saw I saw that and I thought, Stephen Fry, I know he likes technology and history. I'm, he must be interested in Bletchley Park. So luckily he was following me on Twitter. And so that meant I could send him several direct messages, which I did. And um, the next morning, you know, so I was just asking him to help with the campaign. The next morning he tweeted a link to my blog. And uh, instead of getting the usual like 50 hits a day on my blog, which I thought was great, I got um, 8,000 hits just from one tweet from Stephen Fry. And that day I became the most retweeted person in the world on Twitter. So it was just uh, just such an incredible difference. And I was kind of like learning how to campaign as I went along, I suppose. And, uh, you know, that really kind of showed me that if you find key influential people that care about the same things that you do, you can make a big difference really quickly. Um, and so, well, the campaign went on for three years in total. I think when I started, I thought oh, it would be about six months and people will realise we've got to do something and they'll get some money. But actually, it was three years in the end. And um, towards the end, um, I got Google involved. So actually, that was through um the Turing papers so during the campaign some of Alan Turing's papers came up for auction mm. um at Christie's and um I was so there's a guy called Gareth Harpercrete who's a journalist who was trying to raise money so that Bletchley Park could buy the Turing papers and uh, I think he'd raised about twenty thousand pounds but the list price for the papers was I think three hundred to five hundred thousand <laughs> So funny, <laughs> right? So not something you'd have in your back pocket. So I thought I've got to do something to try and help Bletchley Park as well to buy the Turing papers. And I was at a talk at Nesta in London and um, Megan Smith, who was then a, a Google VP, was giving a talk. And I just thought, Google, they've got lots of money. <laughs> Why don't I try approaching Megan and see if she's interested in helping Bletchley Park by the Turing papers? So, so I approached her at the end and uh, she said, oh, you know, send me, send me an email with all the information, um, and which I did. And then that night, I think, someone from Google, a guy called Simon Meacham, uh, got in touch with me through Twitter and said, oh, I've been meaning to get in touch to say I really want to help you with the Bletchley Park campaign. So I told him that I just met Megan Smith and he said, oh, well, send me the email that you sent her and I'll get in touch with her um, as well. And so basically, I think the the auction, so that was something like the Thursday and the next Tuesday, the papers were up for auction. So it was only like five days uh, before the auction was going to happen. And um, and it was over Thanksgiving as well. Um, and I think it was in 2010. And um so Simon and Megan somehow got the, the Google board to um, convene over Thanksgiving um, so that they could uh, give Bletchley Park $100,000 towards purchase of the Turing papers. So so that was amazing. And uh, Bletchley Park actually thought it was a scam. I couldn't believe that. <laughs> I think I would. <laughs> $100,000 from Google. So they like, phoned me up. I remember, I remember where I was sitting and everything when they phoned me up at like 8 o'clock on that morning saying, 
Good. We've just got this email saying Google are giving us hundred thousand dollars. It is. It's. It's like it's a scam, right? And I was like, no, no, no. It's actually true. It's actually yeah. true. <laughs> <laughs> so that was funny. Um, and then, like, the auction was in the afternoon, so I went to the auction and um, kind of sat there waiting for the lot to come up in the auction at Christie's. And uh, the lot came up, and the um, so I knew that Bletchley Park had about a hundred thousand pounds, basically, with all the money that had been raised. And um, the auctioneer said something like, "And the bidding starts at uh, one hundred sixty thousand pounds." And I just thought. Oh, so Bletchley Park can't even bid. So after all of that, like exciting, it's like highs and lows over the weekend of getting this money from Google. Would it happen? Wouldn't it happen? And stuff. Um, and then at the auction, I just thought they can't even bid. You know, so I was like, oh goodness, what's going to happen yeah. now? But actually, what happened was not many people bid uh, on the papers, and I think because we've been making such a noise on social media. Um, apparently lots of the people that would have been interested in buying the Turing papers just didn't didn't go for it because they wanted Bletchley Park to get the Turing papers as well and so what happened was that it didn't meet the reserve price and then uh, Google Bletchley Park I think David Cameron who was the Prime Minister then various people worked kind of behind the scenes to raise some more money I don't know how much money in the end um, to to buy the Turing papers and so I think about three months later um, I was invited up to Bletchley Park when they had a, a kind of a small reception for the receiving of the Turing papers at Bletchley Park. So that was an amazing event. We just kind of stood around going, oh, my goodness, you know, like we helped make this happen. It's so cool. Um, and then, you know, they sort of got pride of place um, in the Turing exhibition, which is at Bletchley Park now. Um, so, yeah, so I could talk about the campaign forever as well. Um, so, but it was three years and in the end it was Google getting involved and also um, Bletchley Park applied for funding from um, Heritage Lottery Fund mm. and they got 4.1 million in 2011. So then they knew that they'd be okay. It's so interesting though, you know, you talk about the human element and, you know, I had, I had no idea um, that there were so many women that worked at Bletchley no. Park um it's yeah it's absolutely incredible that that was just not a known fact for such a long time no. yeah um, it's got well, the thing is I mean lots of people say it Bletchley Park was a victim of its own success so it was so good at keeping things secret you know like everyone that worked there so there's so many 18 year old girls you know turned up to work at Bletchley not even really knowing why they were there yeah um, you know, just having been sort of recommended by their headmaster at school or something um, because they were good at mazes or puzzles or doing the Times crossword or something. And so turning up at, at Bletchley a railway station and uh, not even knowing what, you know, why they were there, what was going to happen. Yeah. They just volunteered to help with the war effort, I think. Um, and then having to go and um, also Jean Valentine, one of the um, amazing veterans, she said that she turned up at Bletchley Station. She didn't know where she was supposed to go or anything. And then someone at the station said, oh, you know, you go over there because the old entrance was opposite the station. And so she kind of went over onto the Bletchley Park site and then was taken straight into a hut where there was a guy behind a desk and a, a soldier standing in the corner with a gun. Uh, you know, and she was um, told that she had to sign the Official Secrets Act and she was never allowed to say anything about anything that she was about to do ever to anyone. Um, and so, you know, they, they, she was probably scared to do it. Yeah, right? you the original it, NDA. You know, kind of gone <laughs> yeah. From, yeah, yeah, kind of gone, gone from from school and uh living in Scotland. She said it's the first time she'd been away from home, you know, like yeah. to turn up there. You can just imagine 
uh, how traumatized she must have been, you know, like signing the official secrets act and then, you know, never speaking about it again. So um, there's just so many incredible stories that, you know, and I kind of feel like we've got films like the imitation game, which came quite a long time after the end of the campaign where there's one woman uh, in the whole of Bletchley park. um, And the story that's told about children there is not correct. You know, so it's amazing there's a Hollywood film about Bletchley Park, but, you know, why couldn't you just tell the real story? Because that's great. Um, And we still don't have a film which kind of showcases the women that work there, really, at all, which is mad. So any film producers out there? Yes. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. All the film producers that listen to our particular... (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure there are lots. Yeah, there must be loads, yeah. Yeah. I I was going to say, I was going to talk about the the movie because I imagine that even though it doesn't tell the correct story, it does bring a lot of awareness to the place itself. Completely. Uh, yeah, so, so it made a difference for me because, well, so the campaign ended in 2011. I think that came out in 2015 or something. And um, so like three or four years after. And it was quite funny because I I knew all of, well, not all about, I knew that that was happening kind of when it was happening because, you know, because there were thousands of people on Twitter tweeting related to, to kind of um, Bletchley Park stuff. We were all tweeting with each other. So if anything happened to do with Bletchley Park across the world, you know, I'd hear about it or Alan Turing. And um, at that time, um, someone, you know, at some point someone said, oh, there's somebody uh, uh, writing a film script, which is going to be a Hollywood film about Alan Turing. So we were like, woo that's very exciting and then to start with you know then there was some more news came out oh um uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is going to be Alan Turing's so like oh Leonardo <laughs> and then it was like no 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 Benedict Cumberbatch is going to be uh Alan Turing uh, so all these kind of like bits of information coming out over time and then at some point um someone tweeted saying that uh they'd just seen someone from the production company at LAX and they were coming they were getting on a flight to London and they thought that they were coming over to scout for locations to film this film, which we didn't know what it was going to be called uh, at that time. The sort of the film about Alan Turing, and um, and but they they apparently they weren't going to actually to Bletchley Park itself uh, to look at it as a location. So so you know, I thought, well, that's ridiculous. I've got to go to Bletchley yes, Park. Yes, both of us, both <laughs> Joe and I, just looked. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exactly how I felt at the time as well. And so while that guy was on the plane, um, you know, like we were chatting on Twitter, basically, you know, hundreds of people probably. Um, and so we all kind of like Twitter bombed him, or I don't even know what you call it, but, you know, like tweeted him saying, you've got to go to Bletchley Park. Like you've got to visit Bletchley Park. Um, and so, you know, the account, which was, I think, Black Bear Productions, never replied to any of our tweets, but um, but I think I hope that we made the difference. But so so they did go to Bletchley Park and have a look. And in the end, they did use Bletchley Park for the scenes in the bar, um, which is the ballroom at Bletchley Park. So they did use Bletchley Park. And um, yeah, so Bletchley Park was in it. But but apparently that the, the um, stately home that they used um, for yeah for Bletchley Park for the mansion house building at Bletchley Park which wasn't at Bletchley Park um they said that they used that place because the uh, mansion house at Bletchley Park didn't look enough like Bletchley Park for the film so all I can think of is that you know I guess the film is mainly for American audiences because there's such so many more people in the states than in the UK and maybe it didn't look like the 
an American's idea of Bletchley Park. You know, I mean, I don't really know. I always thought that was a bit confusing. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> at le- but at least some of it was filmed at Bletchley Park in the end, so that was good. Yeah, I'm sure maybe there was some logic there at some point, but I can't quite see it now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for coming and chatting thank to us you. today, Sue. It's oh, been you're very so interesting. Um, there are so many different elements to your career. I, you know, I could honestly just talk to you all day about them. Um, yes. <laughs> I'll so come I, back. Yeah, oh, please do. Part two. Please do, yes. <laughs> um so I suppose for people that are interested in finding out more about you where can they find you um it seems you're very active on Twitter um, yeah so at Dr Black on Twitter sueblack.co.uk then I'm at Durham University so if you google Durham Sue Black you'll be able to find me and it's quite funny because there's another Sue Black who's my friend who's like a famous forensic anthropologist so we get mistaken for each other all the time <laughs> oh, so God. I'm Sue Black at Durham and she's at Lancaster um so don't uh yeah don't get confused um and yeah I mean I think if you google Sue Black you'll get one one or other of us and then you have to work out that I'm the one who's computer science yeah. <laughs> both got red hair as well so it's quite funny I was gonna no, say good, red thing, hair. good thing that you don't both work in the same field that would be so much more confusing <laughs> yeah no, I know but we're both we're both in science right we're both in STEM so you know it's reason it's close enough that we get confused with each other all the time it's quite funny we actually we met up um a couple of years ago and I've got a great photo uh, with her which I'll tweet when this comes out um because she's uh so cool right <laughs> I like the idea of a kind of sea black fest <laughs> yeah. Yeah. let's make it happen yeah <laughs> oh well thank you again um and yeah it's been wonderful talking to you oh you're very welcome it's been an absolute pleasure if you have an interesting topic you'd like featured on the show, a guest recommendation or a burning question, email podcast at cheering.ac.uk. The Cheering Podcast is hosted by Ed Cowstry, B. Costa Gomez and Joe Dungate and produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute. Music for the podcast was provided by Jam and Sun. You can check out his latest releases at jamminson.bandcamp.com.